Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, June 27th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Last week, Pastor Mark Downey and I started a discussion from a sermon that he had written entitled White Genocide, The Ultimate Curse. The purpose being that Christians should not look at what's going on in the world today at the judgment of our race by the hand of our God as white genocide. In fact, White Israelite Christians are promised absolute, we have an absolute promise of salvation from our God. While the word of our God in Obadiah, in Jeremiah chapter 30, in Jeremiah chapter 45, in several places in Isaiah, and especially in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, guarantees us the ultimate destruction of every single one of our enemies, of all those who would take advantage of, devour, and feed off of our race. As the Word of God says in Obadiah, verses 15 and 16, and I will only paraphrase, all the heathens who are feeding off of the holy mountain of Yahweh, which is the children of Israel, shall be They shall drink, and they shall drink the cup of Yahweh's wrath. They shall drink the cup of the wrath of God, and they shall be as though they had not been. In Amos chapter 7, we see a message of impending judgment against the children of Israel. And in verses 7 and 8, Amos sees a vision of a plumb line. And a plumb line usually marks a, a, a line for a carpenter. It marks a division in a wall or, or in a lot so that a carpenter can build something according to the line. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then said the Lord, behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword, and there we see the judgment against the leadership of the nation at the time. In Revelation chapter 13, in verse 10, the King James Version has a serious error in the forms of the verbs that it translated in that passage. And verse 10 is actually teaching predestination. If one is for captivity, into captivity he goes. If one is to be slain by the sword, he is to be slain by the sword. Thus is the patience and the faith of the saints. That is the plumb line of Amos. Yahweh our God has already judged his people. Some of us are going to see salvation and everlasting life, and some of us are going to see judgment and punishment in this life before we arrive in the world to come. 
the line is already drawn. And here we have Pastor Mark Downey once again to present the second part of his sermon, which will actually consume several of these programs, and that's entitled White Genocide, No Silver Bullet. Hello, Mark. Good evening, Bill. Thank you for being here. Well, it's my pleasure. Um, you, you jump right into the water tonight, and uh, it, it's certainly true that uh, uh, this recurring theme of judgment and deliverance is um, uh, inherent within our race. And uh, we just seem to keep forgetting uh, and not learning from our own history uh, what happens when we turn away uh, from our own creator. I'd uh, like to open with a prayer, if I may. Yes, sir. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that Bill and I can be your humble servants and bring forth this message tonight. We pray that it will reach the right people and that it will lift them up and out of this insidious secular philosophy that takes no consideration of their creator nor the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We also pray for the blessing of true believers in Christian identity who will not succumb to the propaganda of white genocide and will be able to articulate the good news of the racial message. May our people have the ears to hear and the eyes to see your great plan of the ages. We pray this in the authority of Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Before I get started, I would just like to say that um, we uh, have the great pleasure of being in your company for the last week and uh, thoroughly enjoyed um, our many conversations. And the week just went too fast. <laughs> um, and um, so I just wanted to thank you for uh, letting us host uh, your being here and, and actually ac accomplishing quite a bit while you were here. Well, thank you. And, and <laughs> I, I'm sure that Melissa would agree that the pleasure is all ours. Thank you for having us. Okay, I'll uh, get into um, part two, No Silver Bullet. Genocide is not a word Christians should desire in their nomenclature as a mantra. I know you've used that word before, and it's appropriate. Uh, because we're told in Matthew 6, 7, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. And that's because Christ came so that we may have life. Therefore, genocide is all about death, whereas Christianity is all about life. Uh, the religious practice of repeating a phrase or a prayer, uh, in my estimation, is oriental. And it's alien to our race, these vain repetitions uh, 
most of us have heard um, the Hare Krishnas uh, that uh, our young people seem to um, be attracted to. And it's just this mantra of repetitions, foolish repetitions, saying Hare Krishna over and over again. Um, this is why we well, can't... Go ahead. I'm sorry. That, that's true. You know, if, if we read the scripture, and the signal example, I, I believe, is in, in the first book of Samuel, in the opening chapters, what, when Samuel was what was growing up and, and the spirit of God was upon him and the favor of God was upon him, it, it, it says that not a word from his lips fell to the ground. And Christians, sincere Christians, should believe that everything that they speak is eventually going to be true or is true at the time they speak it. Does that mean that we can't lie or be mistaken? No. That means that when we speak, we have our hearts set to speak the truth about what we see in the world around us and, and what we see happening. And if we constantly repeat that these white genocide mantras, as, as you call them, well, well, then we're speaking lies because the plan of God is quite different. We're actually speaking the vanities of men. We have a greater hope in Christ. And we should not see what is happening to much of our race today as genocide. We should see it as judgment from God. Right. And, and that's why I pray that our uh, message tonight doesn't fall on deaf ears because um, by the same token, uh, we can't afford to have the luxury to echo a constant threat that looms over us like why genocide? Uh, having the expectation that a, a slogan uh, will save us from doom and gloom, the, the destruction that we're well, well aware of. But the Bible says thieves and robbers of Israel come only to steal and kill and destroy. What we have here are competing means, which are con concepts having the capacity to expand exponentially and affect any given culture. The alleged uh, Jewish genocide has gone under the guise of the Holocaust and has pumped billions of dollars into the coffers of Antichrist Jews. Well, the love of money is the lifeblood of the Jew. We are not Jews. So we do not have to resort to the ways and means of Jews. Now make no mistake about it, Jews are destroyers, and we're at the top of their list. Uh, just recently, Pastor Elmore um, said in his, one of his sermons, Jews, mostly Zionist in nature, have spearheaded every movement or cause that now threatens our destruction and brings us to the edge of extinction and annihilation. Uh, however, First uh, John 3.8 states, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. 
So I ask, is it too much of a stretch to say the destroyer Jew is going to be destroyed? Uh, no, I don't think so. We have ample prophecy that pinpoints the Edomite Jew as the one being annihilated. Christ made an important declaration in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. It says, therefore, since the children, the children of God, have flesh and blood in common, he, referring to Christ, also in like manner took part in the same. That through death, he would annul the one having the power of death, that is, the devil, the false accuser, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, end quote. But we have to go back to the original cause of death. Indeed, the cause of death or genocide, if you want to call it that, right up to this point in time, 2015. And there we will find a culprit. Well, if we're sick, do we treat the effects or the cause? The sorcerer always treats the effects and thus deceives all nations. Got cancer? Cut, burn, drug. Don't pray. Don't change your diet. And don't certainly don't believe in divine healing. And there's a... Um... That there's an overreaching pattern of, of history that even many, even many Christians miss. That the um, the word diabolos is false accuser for a good reason, and, and diabolos is it is a typically false accusation in, in the Greek lexicon, and it's a good name for the Jew because it fits their behavior pattern very well. But if we look at our history, if we look at our history, history throughout all um, of, of the last millennium, we could see a pattern where the Jew begins to infiltrate a nation in the role of panderer. The Jew is the, the, um, the one that opens the gambling halls, the, the one that offers the usury banking, the, the one that offers the prostitution. He plays the role of panderer and plays on people's weaknesses. And when people begin to worship the idols, such as burlesque and, and, and pornography and things like that, that this Jew offers, which happens over and over and over again, we saw it in France, we saw it in Germany in, in the 19th century, what we saw it in America in, in the 19th and 20th centuries, that's the same pattern all throughout history for 5,000 years, even before they were known as Jews, that the Jews have, 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 um, have, have conducted themselves in. And once our white nations begin to worship those idols which the Jew offers us, the Jew is able to subvert the nation and, and, and pollute it, and that's judgment from God. In America today, most of our people were worshiping the idols that the Jew offered us in the 1800s and, and early 1900s with vaudeville, with burlesque, with the gambling, but with the usury banking, but with um, materialism. And, and now today we are suffering the results of that. And, and I think that's the point that you're trying to make 
we are the sickness. We have a sickness, and, and the things that the, that the devils are able to do to us are the result of our sickness. They are the, the, the effect. They are not the cause. If we had walked in the ways of our God and, and kept um, good Christian behavior and, and good Christian society, we would not be suffering in the manner that which we are today. Yeah, and I touch on uh, the Jew as the panderer, um, which you um, articulated well. I, I heard a term years ago, uh, which was congenital liars. <laughs> and, and that term fits the Jew perfectly, and so much so that it, it's a fulfillment of um, the passage that explains those who uh, call good evil and evil good. I mean, boy, are we ever living in that day and age. Yes, we are, and, and recent Supreme Court decisions prove that beyond all doubt. Oh, last week was um, a, a double whammy, um, uh, which we can get into a little later. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, the signs of the times uh, are there for those that have eyes to see. If I may continue, um, reading Romans 6.23, by one man... Sin entered into the world, and death by sin. Well, that, excuse me, that was Romans 5.12. Romans 6.23 follows up that thought uh, by saying the wages of sin is death. Uh, if we can isolate that which Christ came to destroy and that which has the power of death, then we can identify that which destroys us. Again, why... Did Christ come? First John 3, 5 says he was manifested to take away our sins. Then in Hebrews 9, 26, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then in Hebrews 9, 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from death, meaning dead works or rituals or sin, to serve the living God. Well, this begs the question, was the purpose of Christ manifesting himself in the flesh to destroy one and the same thing or to destroy two different things? Is the devil the cause of our sins and what causes us to die? And therefore, is what is destroyed? If the collective Jew is the devil, then I hope it is the one being annihilated. Well, well the collective Jew is certainly a facet of the works of the devil, that there's no doubt, but that's only one facet. It's a multidimensional. I see the works of the devil as being multidimensional. I'm putting my focus on sin here. So in John... 1 John 3, 4, it says sin is the transgression of the law, and the wages of sin is death. But then who is the sinner? The Jew is simply a devil tempting man to sin. The whole 
entity of Jewry, Zionist or otherwise, are really used car salesmen for temptations. Their trade and ply is vice. I gave this message on Mother's Day several weeks ago. I said the women of our church do not wear fire engine red lipstick or any lipstick that I can detect. But if a fire engine truck were to drive by and that led them to put on some red lipstick, can we say it's the fire engine's fault? (laughs) And I have to say the ladies of our church are beautiful just the way God made them. And our race was created to follow the law of life, not death. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Romans 8, 2. Well, if indeed we follow Christ, we are free from the law of sin and death. So there's two different paths in which our people can go. Uh, Our subtitle today is No Silver Bullet. And I gleaned from Wikipedia, yeah, I know it's a a Jewish source, but it says in folklore, a bullet cast from silver is often the only weapon that is effective against a werewolf, a witch, or other monsters. Sometimes the silver bullet is also inscribed with Christian religious symbolism, such as a cross or the initials. JMJ, which stands for Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. How Catholic. (laughs) Aside from myths being mythological or not real, there really is no need then for mythical weapons. There is no silver bullet for non-existent monsters. The term has become a contemporary idiom that will kill whatever adversary or adversity that troubles us albeit tongue-in-cheek, it carries with it the expectation that some new miraculous response to a problem will be resolved. I've heard the phrase quite often among um, the legal eagles fighting the IRS, where there is some limited success, but nothing resembling a meme. The irony is that a lot of their silver bullets are perfectly correct and should kill any obligation towards, quote, voluntary compliance. However, their cure is secular and superficial. It's dealing with a maze of fictions and legalese. The reality is that we have an abundance of wolves in sheep's clothing, standing behind the pulpits of America, we have witches galore, one's even running for president, and we have monsters. I heard several years ago, a monster is defined in Black's Law Dictionary as, quote, a prodigious birth, a human birth, but in some part resembling a lower animal or offspring not having the shape of mankind, which cannot be heir to any land, albeit it be brought forth in marriage, end quote. 
given this 19th century understanding, before the population explosion of the third world in the 20th century, Aden abetted by the Judaized missionary church and so-called humanitarian philanthropy, the non-white monsters of the world, the Negro in particular, were rightly discerned as man-like beasts and beast-like men on the dark continent of Africa. Commentaries of the Victorian era, a long period of peace, prosperity, refined sensibilities, and national self-confidence suggested that the Negro sprang from a species of apes, or that apes were themselves the offspring of Negroes and some other admixture of beasts. These theories were squarely in line with the ancient tradition that Africa was a land, quote, bringing daily forth new monsters, end quote, because as Aristotle himself had suggested, many different species came into proximity at the scarce watering places. Jean Baudin, the famous 16th century French political theorist, summarized this wisdom of the ages with the categorical remark that, quote, promiscuous coition of men and animals took place, wherefore the regions of Africa produced for us so many monsters, end quote. And, and let me help you quantify that, Mark. I, I can help s- substantiate that sure. from something I wrote in an essay at Christoginninger a long time ago. And that essay contains a quote from the Greek historian of the first century BC, Theodore Siculus. And you're talking about how these monsters in Africa um, kind of coagulate along the watering holes. And, and Theodore said that those who, that those, I don't want to call them people, but those beings in Ethiopia, and Theodorus had already described cultured, civilized Ethiopians, who were certainly white, and then he talks about these beasts in Ethiopia who dwell along the river, and he says that they are black in color and have flat noses and woolly hair, and he goes on to say that as for their spirit, they are entirely savage and display the nature of a wild beast and are as far removed as possible from human kindness to one another and cultivating none of the practices of civilized life, they present a striking contrast when considered in the light of our own customs. That's how Theodore Siculus described what we would call the Negro, to put it nicely. The, um, the word human comes from a word, a Latin word, humanus, and humanus means to be kind, to show kindness, and that's its basic meaning. So here we see Theodorus Siculus describes niggers as being as far removed as possible from human kindness. So how do we consider them human? They are indeed monsters. Right, I've I've heard your take on the word human before, and there really is no etymology, etymological 
um, verification for uh, the first syllable hue meaning color and thus colored man well well that's I, I know that that that, that um, misinterpretation has been repeated often in identity Christian circles but in truth the Latin word humanus means to show kindness and, and to be kind and to be civilized and, and my point is that the ancient Greeks described these blacks as absolutely unkind and uncivilized. Therefore, they can't possibly be humanists. They can't possibly be human. And, and that's probably true. Um, but as happens so many times, uh, words can morph or be hijacked for the ulterior purposes of uh, uh, what people um, they want them to be, um, much like the word gay uh, used to mean happy. <laughs> we know that uh, is no longer the, uh, the, the colloquial uh, accepted politically correct uh, term that means that. Uh, well, well, right. There's a lot of terms in, in that identity Christians like to abuse because it fulfills an agenda at one time or another that they need to fill, and, and human is one of those words. Yeah, and uh, it, it's also been used, I'd say, by our adversaries, uh, the, the Human Rights Commission and uh, uh, humanitarianism, uh, suggesting uh, universalism. Um, so it, there's two sides of the fence, uh, interestingly, uh, with this word. Well, well, the bottom line is that niggers are not human, and they should not be considered man. And the other races should not be considered man, because man is our old English biblical translation of the word Adam, and the other races certainly are not Adam. Right. And I, I didn't really want to get us hung up on this topic. No, but, but you're right that the ancient understanding of non-whites was, was certainly we are not them and they are not us. Absolutely. That's the point that uh, we should see here. Well, the biblical prohibitions uh, against miscegenation are nearly lost today, preserved primarily through the teachings of our own Christian identity. Uh, and even within our ranks, uh, there are hypocrites who poison the intellectual marketplace of ideas with the leaven of racial inclusion. A person who promulgates the notion that one can have 15% mixed blood and still be considered white, in my opinion, should be flogged with the same whip Jesus used to chase the usurpers out of the temple in Jerusalem. For such an absurd and destructive utterance, I can only conclude that it is no accidental intrusion and that we have an adversary, along with his Amen Choir, that has been organized to distort the fame and destroy Christian identity from within. I, I usually don't use names in my sermons but I have in the past, and I will tonight, name Eli James or Joe November or whatever alias he's going under, is not only a fraud, but an enemy of the white race. And 
he's not the only interp interloper. Uh, on a larger scale, this is what's happened to the church world. In the secular realm, social engineers subvert the white man's destiny. If I may speak, speak in metaphor, metaphorical terms, werewolves have sunk their teeth into passive congregations and sucked their blood dry. The metaphor is not lost when ministers become agents of the state and encourage our young white warriors to march off to another Jewish war, culling the sheep in the name of a false theocracy, a false Israel, and a false God. Even our own people do not understand the hidden hand of satanic shapeshifters, the transformation of a man into the characteristics of a wolf. There is still the instinct to remove oneself from the proximity of wickedness. The great apostasy or falling away from the institutionalized church may be a blessing rather than a curse as a survival mechanism. Come out of her, my people, Revelation 18.4. The churches are as corrupted as the government, still trying to portray themselves as angels of light when in fact they are the messengers of death. A fully integrated society are the last nails being hammered on the lid of our national coffin. We are descendants of white Europeans who made their nation civilized and beautiful. African slaves brought to the Americas by Jews had not discovered the wheel had no written language, and were basically intellectually retarded. After 1865, they were released upon white society, and the curse has been with us ever since. You know, Mark, this has been a historic struggle that, that, um, that's perhaps older than the time of Charles Martel between the, the preservation of race and the objectives of the church and, and the behavior of the churches in the days of Charles, Charles Martel it is very exemplary of the struggle. Charles Martel rose up to raise an army and, and he had to feed it and, and arm it and pay it in order to prevent the Muslims from invading France. And he raided the church coffers in order to supply his forces. And the bishops of France despised him for that. They would rather be Muslims and keep their gold than stand for that, that Christ and, and their race and give up their gold. And, and that struggle between the, um, the, the churches and the preservation of the nation is very evident again, and it's been something that I've been trying to quantify in, in, my, in, in my presentations of positive Christianity in the Third Reich, that because in Germany, National Socialism was certainly founded on positive Christianity and on Christian principles. However, the churches were despised 
because the churches were operating against the interests of the nation and the race. And, and we see that in America again today, where people who care about their nation and race are eventually going to have to flee these churches. Because just like the churches in the days of Charles Martel were more concerned with their own wealth than they were with the sheep of God, the churches in the time of Adolf Hitler were more concerned with their own wealth and growth and well-being than they were in the people of God. And we have that same thing again here in America today. Well, there, there truly is, once again, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And it's because they know there's some, something direly wrong with the institutional church. Uh, they've become disenfranchised. They, they no longer attend uh, church. Uh, they're, they're lost spiritually. And, uh, and I think that's the reason why God has brought forth the, the Christian identity movement. And the enemy, of course, is doing everything they can to stymie it from, from moving. It's almost as if we have an apostasy within Christian identity at some times uh, because of all these pet doctrines and people wanting to go in their own directions. And, and most of these pet doctrines are caused by churchianity ideas being and, and, and people acting as if they were Pharisees and, and attempting to impose their church ideas onto their Christian identity brethren. Yeah, it is a residual effect of denominationalism, no doubt. Well, there is no silver bullet. Uh, there is no water baptism. There is no communion or Lord's Supper. There is no anointing of oil. There is no laying on of hands. There is no going to church. There is no ritual or work of man that can save us. If we are engaged in the blasphemy of the doctrine of Balaam, which, if you recall, was bait in the trap, for our ancient Israelite ancestors to fornicate with the racial alien. And we have the same kind of cosmetic enticements today, only streamlined for brainwashing our children. The apostasy of white nationalists is not turning away from political correctness, it's turning away from God and not understanding the divine cause and effect of genocide, like the Nicolaitans, which may have been the general character of society rather than a specific people, who held that their freedom and liberties placed them above the moral law of God, giving them license to commit the foulest of sins for our grief and misery instead. Perhaps the analogy of... Um, what I like to call kosher conservatives and bleeding heart liberals constituting the perfect storm for Marxist dialectics today. Revelation 2.14 is the only place that mentions this particular doctrine, the doctrine of Balaam, of race mixing, 
and starts the verse with God saying, I have a few things against you. God is against racial integration. Numbers 31.16 alludes to the effects of uh, Balak hiring Balaam to seduce the men of Israel with the strange women of Moab to curse the children of Israel, to wit, behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord, end quote. A similar circumstance of race mixing in Numbers 25. Uh, If you recall, Phineas caused the deaths of 23,000 white people in one day. Our God commands us to be a separate people or face the consequences. If there is a white genocide, it is compounded with a white suicide. They say suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. With all the doom and gloom mantra of things are going to get worse, we can identify the escalating meme that there is no hope. However, in Christianity, the God of our race is a God of forgiveness, forgiving us of our sins. If there were no pardon for our transgressions of the law, we would have become extinct a long time ago. We may very well go to the edge of extinction, but our entire race is not going to die if we believe Scripture, one of which states, quote, this body that decays must be changed into a body that cannot decay. This mortal body must be changed into a body that will live forever. 1 Corinthians 15.53 We believe that the original white man and woman were immortal, but fell from grace, becoming mortal. God's plan for the ages, it's going to take thousands of years of history for our race to return to its glorified bodies. In the expanse of the last 6,000 years or so, from Adam to the present and onward to the second coming of Christ, the testimony of Jesus will prove to be the spirit of prophecy. The Lord's saying, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine, Isaiah 55, 8. Most prophecy is structured as cause and effect. You do this, and this is what's going to happen. And most of the time, it's some kind of national sin that is presented as a dire warning having lethal consequences. You know, right here, Mark, I'd like to make a couple of comments. The first being that that the doctrine of Balaam is certainly a, a reference to race mixing, and and that's very evident in in the Book of Numbers, as you pointed out. 
and it's condemned by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's condemned, this race mixing, it's condemned by Jude, the apostle. It's condemned by Peter, the apostle. And it's condemned by Christ in chapter 2 of the Revelation. But churches do not teach it today. They steer clear of it because they are little but government agents. But this last, um, this last idea in, 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 your, um, in your presentation about suicide, because our race is really committing suicide and not genocide, in, in this instance of, of um, this modern fad of race mixing, that this leads me to a, to a question, and, and I haven't asked this of you or, or heard you respond to it, and, and, and I'm sorry if I'm putting you on the spot, but, but this is a question that I've asked several times in my recent programs concerning secular white nationalists, and that is that without God, what does it matter if there's no God? If there's no life to come, if there's no future without God, what does white genocide matter? If our race, if there's no God, and if we have no spiritual life with that God in the future, what does it matter if all whites die? What we leave behind us a, a hell in which the aliens and, and, uh, are going, and the Jews are going to burn together. Well, if I could answer, try to attempt to answer that, um, the, um, the mantra that we hear right now being uh, repeated over and over again is Black Lives Matter. And I had a laugh the other day uh, when Hillary um, misspoke and said, all lives matter. <laughs> and... Uh, that did not go over well with um, the, the heathens that are raging all over the place right now. Uh, but, but really, as a white Christian American, it's white lives that matter. Because, as I just mentioned, God does have a plan for the ages. And his chosen race is an integral factor. Now, if you throw a monkey wrench into an, an extinction of what God has created for a particular purpose, and that purpose is to bring forth his kingdom uh, on this planet we call Earth, then it, it speaks ill of the God of the Bible. And no wonder so many non-whites hate the Christian God because it doesn't pertain to them. And so they either have to create their own version of Christianity or a false God. And the thing about white nationalists is that they are no different when they reject Jesus Christ, or they emulate a mongrelized mind. It is an impediment to the kingdom of God. Well, well absolutely. And my point in, in asking that is that 
white nationalists are, are actually um, that they're sounding false alarms because if there is in, in the secular white nationalist mind, God does not matter in all of this, and 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 perhaps the mantra that we should that that we should repeat is. God's life matters because he's the only one that matters. But the white nationalists deny God and, and deny his hand in what is going on. So what I can't figure out is if they, if they don't um, see the, the hand of God in our lives and in our existence, then in the end it really doesn't matter what race we are. It doesn't matter if we were all bastards if there is no God. And that's my point, that the white nationalists, that, that's a, um, a, a severe case of cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Because tomorrow we shall die. Yeah, and, and I'd also say it's indicative of the cynicism uh, of white nationalism in that they think uh, they need great numbers uh, in order to save the race. However, if, if a student of the word is familiar with how God does things, it usually doesn't entail great numbers. It's usually a remnant. And the last and, remnant was eight. Say again? The last remnant was only eight. <laughs> yeah, and I mentioned that in part one. Um, we're in the same boat today uh, where Christian identity isn't really looking for huge numbers to, to uh, change things. Uh, we're simply planting the seeds of hope because as I, I started out here tonight, Christianity is what gives hope. I don't see any hope in white nationalism, especially with the mantra of white genocide. Where is the hope? It's not there. It, it's, it's this uh, hue and cry that the sky is falling, woe is me. And um, when you were here uh, a week ago, we casually mentioned what's coming up in mid-July, this, uh, this federal Jade Helm operation. Um, and, and both of us agree that it's, it's uh, probably much ado about nothing. And uh, uh, there's, there's all kinds of uh, extravagant speculation leading up to uh, that date. But um, there's this little old lady I read about that was curious about what this name Jade Helm operation meant. Um, so she researched it until she found some government documents that tell us Jade uh, stands for Joint Assistant for Development and Execution. It was found in the Air Force Research Laboratory circa 2001. And the other word, Helm, is homeland eradication of local militants. <laughs> and that comes from the Department of State 
publication 1777, Disarmament Series 5 in 1961. Now, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with keeping abreast of um, overt austerity reduction plans and covert violence aimed at the white race, but we should discern the flaky alarmists who cry wolf one too many times just to sell a book or to grow an organization. I got a, a typical email uh, from two different outfits saying basically the same thing. One said, newly released evidence shows America will be facing its worst disaster yet in less than 13 months. It's an event so catastrophic in a split second it will unleash ancient diseases, mass riots, and complete chaos upon the world. Former CIA Director James Woolsey says two-thirds of the U.S. population would die, In quote. Well, why doesn't somebody report this to the Genocide Convention and bring them to the world court? Got to sell the book first, right? But it's really pathetic to witness those in positions of authority explaining every botched social program coupled with incessant whining as the fault of white racism. And it's even more uninspiring and pathetic to witness a billboard with a little girl and her brown puppy dog that says, it's not racist to heart your people, meaning to love your people. The good intentions of an amateur propaganda minister that doesn't count for a hill of beans. We shouldn't be running away from right racism. We should be charging the battlefield, embracing all the invectives as a badge of honor. They call us racist? So what? Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. Racism is... I'm sorry, go on. Go on. Racism isn't evil, it's a blessing. And the truth shall make you free. As I stated from the start, race and racism is the most important thing in the Bible. Secular white nationalists may love their race, but they're not racist enough to love their God. White Judeo-Christians love everybody, just like their small G God of universalism. And with the Baltimore riots going over the edge, having nothing but contempt for law and order, not just from the criminals and thugs, but black public officials. The white frustration level is reaching the boiling point. Remember the frog in the saucepan? Who in their right mind can tolerate gratuitous and cowardly black-on-white beatings? The black female mayor of Baltimore made the bewildering order to her police officials to give the rioters quote, space to destroy, end quote. And then has the gall 
to ask the Justice Department to open up a civil rights investigation into the city's police department? The police chief is black. And the new U.S. Attorney General is a negress. Can it get any weirder for white people watching this fiasco on CNN? Knowing that once again, their tax dollars will help rebuild the infrastructure of a perpetual rotting corpse. Well, well that's, um, it, it's absolutely true that among many whites, that there is a frustration level which is reaching a boiling point. And, and that's why I believe we have incidents like the incident which recently happened in Charlotte. And, and, and I don't, you know, in Charlotte, that this um, white nerd that, that, that supposedly shot up the, the, this black church, it, it's immaterial to me whether he actually killed anybody or not. Um, it, it's very clear to me that crisis actors were being interviewed in the aftermath of the alleged shootings. If nine niggers died or not, I, I, I it doesn't matter to me one way or the other if they were actually shot. And, and this is some sort of um, what, what, one of those mind control operations where they got this kid to somehow do this or, or however you want to imagine that it happened. Or if in reality nobody was shot and they've manufactured all the news because most of our news is fake anyway. It, it doesn't matter to me what we think about the shooting in Charlotte. What matters is that I believe that this, um, the, the purpose of, of the shooting and this being national news at this time is to convince most white people that whites can do evil things. And once you convince most white people that whites can do evil things, then you can defuse that white frustration level because they are not able to see the links between blacks and criminal activity and violent crimes. If they think that whites can be that bad too, then they can't pinpoint niggers for all these violent crimes that the niggers are really committing. So, so that sort of diffuses any, um, any accountable and any significant white reaction to Ferguson or to Baltimore. It's diffused in Charlotte. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, it, it's... Um a Marxist dialectics right before our eyes, uh, where we see a thesis of a, um, a hateful racist and the anti-thesis of innocent black people and the synthesis of going after uh, gun control, the Confederate flag. Uh, I've heard that Thomas... Uh, Jefferson Memorial is now under scrutiny. I mean, there's a whole litany of things that they can now chisel away at uh, because of this news story. And that's all it is right now is a story. And it's really void of any journalistic integrity, but it, it's um, replete with 
the hypnotic political agenda, just as ready-made as Sandy Hook or the Boston Marathon or, or the really big one, uh, 9-11. And um, it's a Jewish-controlled media that's deciding uh, for the people of America that the alleged perpetrator is guilty before proven innocent. Why even bother having a trial when the talking heads of now get, gets into our turf of historical revisionists and white nationalists and even Christian identity are regurgitating Jewish propaganda? There's one pro- commentator who's well aware of MK Ultra Mind Control made the absurd observation that the political views of a homicidal terrorist was no interest to him, and yet he advocates hanging the accused in public. Well, you know, what if they were to kidnap this revisionist and, and torture and, and drug and hypnotize him to be their Manchurian candidate? Wouldn't he want someone in his corner, a, a dissident racist, to articulate how people in an Orwellian world are framed and railroaded for crimes that were beyond their control or ulterior motives to get their dialectic synthesis? You know, the sheeple have an imagination for wicked racists but they can't imagine Jews or niggers staging a false flag for ulterior motives. (laughs) Is it just kind of coincidence that the Patriot Act and uh, new Department of Homeland Security was planned before 9-11? And uh, the boogeyman terrorist charade is, is simply Marxist dialectics. You know, immediately after the shooting at this church, Obama was right there at his teleprompter spouting gun control and evil racism. So, uh, yeah, there's there's much more to this story uh, that needs to be told. Um, and that's why I think um, voices such as ours uh, dissident as they are, uh, need to be heard. And, and that was my prayer earlier that uh, the right people will hear it tonight. Well, well um, I'm sure they, I'm sure they will, I, I pray. That the, um, the, the result of this, white, what white people of, and, and any people, any people of like mind or of similar objectives and this is a tendency of, of any race, is to unify behind a symbol. And there are two great symbols, the way I see it, the last 200 years, that have been used historically and which a nation or race has united themselves behind. And that is, of course, the swastika in National Socialist Germany and the stars and bars here in, in the southern United States. Now, the swastika has no historic American use, so we don't see it very often here displayed publicly in America. But the stars and bars is 
proudly displayed by countless white Americans who have an appreciation for their Southern heritage and their Southern culture. So the result of Charleston is another push to eliminate the stars and bars from, or the Dixie flag as it's often called, from public view. Now, if whites of like mind have no symbol by which to identify each other, it's all that much more difficult for whites to unite in a common cause. And this, this is just another um, Jewish propaganda campaign to make it as, as they progressively clamp down on any um, possible source of dissension to make it difficult for whites to find um, commonly like-minded people with whom to, to, to associate themselves. Well, I'll tell you something. Uh, a couple of years ago, the, the pillar of white nationalism, uh, Don Black's Stormfront, and avatars having swastikas and Confederate flags. Well, well, that shows that Don Black's Stormfront it is either um, founded on compromise or it's dishonest in the first place. Well, again, it, it's going for the huge numbers to appeal to the soccer moms rather than Christ saying, feed my sheep, feeding the warriors who may be small in numbers who can effectively deal with the enemy of our race. You know, talk about frustration here in Kentucky. There's an upstart Negro judge in Louisville who refused to sentence two savages in a home invasion to prison. Two black males stormed into the home of a white family and terrorized them at gunpoint. The family made a victim impact statement about the trauma that had been inflicted on their daughter, who was three years old at the time. The, <clears throat> the family testified that two years later, she is still terrified of black males. So Judge Olu Stevens then chastised the victims and expressed sympathy for the confessed perpetrators. He suggested that it was the fault of the victims that their daughter was afraid of blacks. Stevens would only sentence the thugs to probation so that they can resume their criminal careers to invade more white homes. You know, black jurors are notorious for giving free passes or, or um, not guilty verdicts <laughs> to black thugs, O.J. Simpson being the most famous case. However, the reality of innocent white victims of black criminals could never turn us into a culture of victimhood. That's what sin does to a nation race such as ours. Instead of standing for what is right, some of our kindred engage in the sophistry of marginalizing the latent racism that God wrote in our heart and mind. God's law keeps us from being lawless and victims. How about a billboard with a noose? 
that reads, racism, it's what keeps white Christian America alive. <laughs> that would be telling the truth. <laughs> you know, even milk toast billboard with a little girl and her puppy is lambasted with screeches of bloody racism. So why not get in their face expecting an identical diatribe rather than putting your tail between your legs? There's no reason for the white man to kowtow to their enemies unless they are already subservient. Whatever definition our adversaries want to say racism is, I could care less. Half the battle is a war of words. The most superior worded war strategy is found in the word of God. You think racism means thugs? Look no further than Baltimore and the street thugs tearing apart that city. And that's your, your, um, your comments here are that they reflect the problem with white Americans and with whites the world over which we've always had, and which um, is coming, I believe, to its fruition now, and that problem is projection, or perhaps it could be called altruism. And altruism is that the idea that these other races, that everybody that we come into contact with shares our values. And it's simply not so. Black values, for instance, the real law for the Negro is the law of the jungle. And the Negro has always despised the white man's law, even to the point where the Negro typically refers to whites as the man. And, and that term, the man, represents to Negroes the enforcement of the white man's law. The, the, um, the Negro, when he's caught and, and convicted of a crime is never repentant and, and never feels sorrow for the victims or, or because of the crime that he's committed. He only ever feels sorry that he got caught. Yeah. That's the only thing the Negro feels sorry for. The, um, the, the white race has values of law and justice that are unfound in the Negro, but the white race, whites presume that the Negroes have the same value. And another huge problem with that is the idea of distinction. The Negro, to him, the idea of distinction, whether it be distinction of property or distinction of family or distinction of race, to that, to, to the Negro, that idea is anathema. And as soon as the white man makes a distinction of his own people as contrasted to the Negro, the white man invites the wrath and the hatred of the Negro. It doesn't matter how well you treat the Negro. If the Negro thinks that anything that the white man has is off limits to him, he is going to hate that white man. So the Negro, of course, sees the little girl with the teddy bear at where it says it's not racist to love your own people. Of course, the Negro sees that as racist. 
even though the white man certainly does not. The Negro sees it as racist simply because of the distinction it makes in those three little words, your own people, which exclude the Negro. And just for that, the Negro will hate you. So you may as well tell the nigger the truth and tell him right up front that you are a racist and that you will defend your race against the nigger. Yeah, uh, charity is not endemic to the jungle. (laughs) When they take something that doesn't belong to them, they don't perceive that as stealing. It's merely satisfying their carnal appetites. And, and here's the clear and present danger, Bill, is when the white man begins to emulate the non-white. Uh, to us, that is the death through transgressing the law. The wages of sin is death. Stealing is against the laws of our God. Well, well, that's absolutely true. And, and to the Negro, to the Negro, as well as to the Mexican, as well as to the Oriental, they see your kindness as weakness. Yeah. So to them, charity is weakness, and charity to them is an invitation for them to take more from you. And even what you're not willing to part with. Something that needs to be said to all these race traitors, if I may quote Matthew Henry, that when sinners flatter themselves for their own ruin, it is time to tell them they shall have no peace if they go on. None shall remain in possession of the city but those who are buried in it. Those are at least safe who are most secure. God is often pleased to single out some sinners for warning to others. And Matthew Henry was commenting there on Ezekiel 11:2, which says, Then said he unto me, Son of man, these are the men that devise mischief and give wicked counsel in this city. And the heathen were enraged, and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your authority, the small and the great. And I like this last part, and I'm reading from 11.18, Revelation 11.18. And to destroy those who destroy the earth. Did you get that last line? To destroy those who destroy the earth. We fight fire with fire because that's the only thing politically correct racism, a vicarious racism for multicultural diversity understands. Why apologize for being white? And, and, you know, compromise, I see compromise basically as a, a, um, a prearranged defeat. As soon as you compromise with your adversary, you are guaranteeing your defeat. And when we compromise with the world, 
when we use the politically correct language the Jew wants us to use, when we eschew the terms that, that, that best defend us, such as racism and hate, when we eschew those terms, we are compromising with our enemies. Compromising with our enemies, we guarantee our defeat. That's what Yahweh told the children of Israel. Do not take their daughters for your sons. Do not follow their ways, lest they make you sin against me. We are not to compromise with our enemies. And when we compromise with the enemy, we're marginalizing the God of Israel. You know, the, you know, the, the massive churches out there are dead or dying. They may be a, a temporary happy-go-lucky refuge for sinners and reprobates that entertain the senses, but they do nothing for the white race. In order to do something for our race, there has to be voices that are as racist as the disciples and the apostles of the first century church who cared less about being called derogatory names. Those were fighting words of a colorblind society just like today. There would be no Christianity today had it not been for the sacrifices unto death to preserve the word for the preservation of the white race. We in Christian identity agree that it has almost been adulterated beyond repair, unrecognizable as a document supporting a racial consciousness. But again, God brings forth a movement for what is needed most. And again, the termites come out of the woodwork to water it down or to compromise it. And today, there is no greater focus than race. And it is given freely to those with eyes that can see. I say given freely because there are some worms who think they're God's gift to the world and the world owes them a living. You and I are not in this because we think the world owes us a living. <laughs> well, if anybody in Christian identity thinks they're going to, you know, get pay dirt, they're, they're sorely mistaken. And, and there are those types out there. And tonight should be a warning for anybody that can detect that in those ministries. Stay away from them. Identity is the um, staying in my ministry is the sure way to assure my poverty. <laughs> That's okay. That's the way it should be. Well, there is no silver bullet that man can forge from metals. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, "There is a way which seems right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death." And from Acts chapter 4, we see the way from God's perspective. In verse 23, it says, And being let go, they went back to their own people. But what happened before that? Well, Peter and John had been demonstrating in public the ways of God and were manhandled and arrested by the powers that be. 
we became alarmed that about 5,000 believed their words and the healing that was performed. The rulers, elders, and scribes who crucified Christ made a public show before the city and grilled the disciples, demanding to know, by what power or by what name have ye done this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, by him this man stands before you healed. And there is no other salvation in any man, for neither is there any other authority under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. After Peter and John were released from the jail, got back to their brothers in Christ, related all that happened, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. They were overjoyed with the passion of racism, overcoming their multi-ethnic persecutors through their kinsman Savior, and proclaimed in verse 25, who by the mouth of our father David, through the Holy Spirit said, why did the heathens rage and the people imagine vain things? Referring to Psalms 2.1. Let's continue in verse 26. The kings of the earth stood together, and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and his anointed. Now, that sounds very close to the, the New World Order or the Jew World Order and Freemasonry, whose goal is one world government over one homogenized breed of human beings, or a world, if you will, of monsters. Can you see it already? So what to do? Verse 27, 28 addresses those adversaries, Herod and Pilate and race traitors, not in the sense of them fulfilling their own lust and rage against Christ, but the hidden purpose or hand of God in his infinite wisdom. Quote, to do whatever thy hand and thy counsel foreordain to come to pass. Now, the adversaries then and now are not gathered together to execute their own will as they suppose, but really to fulfill the purposes of God. Nothing comes to pass throughout the ages but for what the Lord has predestined that should be done. What was done to Christ by the Jews was according to the will of God, either by affecting themselves or doing it by others. What the wicked did, God designed for good, and hereby brought about the redemption and salvation of his Israel people. Now what? We get closer to our resolving both sin and gin. I'll explain what that is in a moment. They can try to kill us either through suicide or genocide, but they cannot kill our spirit. Verse 29, And now, Lord, behold their threats, and give to your servants great boldness in speaking your word. 
while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the authority of your holy servant, Jesus. The last verse, verse 31, says that when they prayed and the place where they were assembled was shaken, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they were now able to speak the word of God with boldness. The word, which is translated was shaken, commonly denotes violent agitation as the raging of the sea, the convulsion of an earthquake or a tree shaken by the wind. The language here expresses the idea that it's not your typical seismic activity, but rather an atypical confirmation from God inspiring their mission unshakable. They could now march onto the battlefield of the world with an intense and glowing confidence, and the gates of hell could not prevail against the ecclesia, the called out of God. What unbelievers think a mission impossible is now possible. The not-so-great commission to Africa and other third-world countries would prove to be failures. The mission was directed only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, just as Jesus claimed in Matthew 15:24. In threatening times, our care should not be so much that troubles may be prevented, as that we may go on with cheerfulness and courage in our work and duty. They do not pray, or let us go away from our work now that it has become dangerous, but Lord, give us thy grace to go on steadfastly in our work and not to fear the face of man. God gave them a sign of acceptance of their prayers, The place was shaken, that their faith might be established and unshaken, end quote. Again, Matthew Henry. Well, I I am compelled to write about the white genocide movement, which seems to be the one arm tied behind the back of white nationalism, because It's not moving us into the battle with the whole armor of God to withstand the devil from within and without. A toothless tiger bemoaning anti-racist is code for anti-white. Which is a meme that means very little to the average American. In fact, it means nothing to most Americans. Most Americans haven't even heard the term anti-racist. Uh, unless they've been on college campuses where, where those activists existed or, or took part in, in some of those activities. Most Americans, and especially Americans born before 1980, have um, very little idea of what the term anti-racist means and, and, and don't have any context in which to understand most of those memes which are offered by white nationalists. I think I mentioned in part one, I I participated in a local demonstration here. Evidently, um, it was White Genocide Day worldwide. And um, I 
wasn't necessarily joining their ranks as much as to introduce them to the hope of Christian identity. And uh, as I held up one of these signs, I couldn't help but notice that the passing motorist, and there it must have been, it was a very busy intersection here in Kentucky, in Florence, Kentucky, um, where the motorist, for the most part, had this deer in the headlights look. They didn't get it. <laughs> Absolutely not. That they don't have a context by which to to understand that those simplistic um, white nationalist memes. So, so the white nationalist memes basically only preach to the choir, and, and that is it. The, the um, yet you had mentioned earlier in this presentation, Mark, that the popular Bible translations, and, and you didn't say it in so many words, but you basically expressed the idea that the popular Bible translations in their in, in their um, actual translation have obfuscated the racial message of Scripture, and, and you just gave a lengthy example from Acts chapter four, which you assert relates the racial message of scripture and, and that is absolutely true but you can't see it in most popular translations and, and i just felt that i had to bring this up in in order to help support your contention in acts chapter 4 verse 6 it talks about these high priests and, and hannah hannah the high priest and caiaphas and john and alexandros and, and it says in in the christian new testament and as many as were of the race of the high priest. And that word race in, in the King James Version is simply translated as, as, um, as kindred. And the word is genos, and it means race, where kindred can, can simply mean a family, perhaps the high priest and her cousins. The actual text is saying to us, that this is a, a race, the race of the high priest. And, and that is important because in verse 23, which you quoted here, where the, 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 um, the apostles are let go, the King James says, the King James Version says they went to their own company. But that word is idios, and, and it really, in this context, can be interpreted as countrymen or kindred. We have the race of the high priest being contrasted sharply in the Greek language to the countrymen or the kindred of the apostles who are not. If they're all Jews, they would be all of the same race. What would they not? But in this case, they are that they are certainly contrasted and are not of the same race. And, and that's just one example where the racial message of scripture is indeed obfuscated by the common translations. And, and it happens over and over again throughout those translations. Well, I was blessed today um, looking something up in the Christagenia New Testament. Um, you know, if God does have a chosen people to the exclusion of all others, and... Yeah. The Lord says he came only for this particular people, and it should behoove 
the average white Christian to stop thinking that all people in the Bible means universalism. And the particular verse that I was um, looking at comparatively uh, was Galatians 3.16. And is one passage that should settle the question of exclusivity, although the Masoretic translation tries to alter the anointed to Christ, the person, your translation says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, meaning race. He does not say, and to seeds, meaning plural, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed. And here's the difference, which you translate, which are anointed. But in all the Masoretic Jewish translations, we read, who is Christ? That's quite a difference, isn't it? Well, well there's quite a difference, and, and the difference is in the context. In that same epistle, the, 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 um, the mainstream churches insist that Christ alone is the heir of the promises. But in that same chapter of Galatians, Paul mentions the heirs of the promises in the plural. So if he means the heirs of the promises in the plural, and he's talking about the descendants of Abraham, he's comparing those chosen of the descendants of Abraham to those who are not chosen. So that's why he uses seeds in the singular and plural, because seeds in the Hebrew and Greek languages in the plural always meant a diversity of kinds, where seed meant a plural collective of a single kind. And that's the way the words are used throughout um, both classical and biblical languages of the ancient world. So if, if it's um, a collection of seed, and if it's comparing the various descendants of Abraham, those who were cursed, such as Ishmael and, and Esau, as compared to those who were blessed, which is Jacob Israel, then it's speaking collectively because Paul used that word heirs in the plural later on in that same epistle. So, so it's, it's a matter of interpretation, but the interpretation has to be within the context of Paul's other statements. And the Christogenian New Testament is certainly um, correct in that context. Well, it certainly blows a giant hole in, in universalist uh, thinking uh, in that the promises here are confirmed to only one people. Absolutely, to the seed of the children of Israel, who, according to Paul in Romans chapter 9, and according to secular classical history had already by that time become many nations. You know, if I could be, uh, transpose that thought to the um, Charleston situation, uh, even if, if the Negroes were all shot by a white guy, just as the media says, I still would not in good conscience be remorseful for a seed that is not anointed of God and indeed was not created by God because God creates kind after kind and Adam kind 
is the only man that walks the earth. The word man means Adam. Adam means man. There are no other Adams in the world. Certainly not. They're all bastards, so they are basically all Satan because they were all created in opposition to the laws of God. And yet, there are some revisionist, white nationalist, even a particular Christian identity preacher uh, seems to be in mourning over this incident just as much as blacks. Well, well, that's sickening because um, I don't see any instance in, in the examples of Scripture that we should mourn for the unchosen races, that, that we should mourn for the non-white races anywhere. We, we should always be gleeful when they are destroyed. That's the lesson of Scripture. When the other races meet with their destruction, the children of God should be gleeful. Kind of all joy. <laughs> to express mourning for the destruction of the other races is to compromise with the world. Well, a lot of the world is uh, enmity towards God. Our standards are not of the world. Our standards must be of God if we seek to make God happy. So while we can't advocate violence against the other races, we certainly should not lament when they meet with a just death. Did you want to touch upon that copy I gave you of um, this talking head that uh, has some very wrong thinking about that? He says, shall we become what we oppose? I think he should have asked the question, shall we become bleeding heart liberals? But Well, well right. Shall we become what we oppose? He, he's taking for granted what, what we should oppose. And, and he says, and this is Michael Hoffman, and, and Michael Hoffman does some good work, but he has a lot of bad worldly attitudes, and, and he basically is a bleeding heart liberal. He asks, Shall we become what we oppose? And he says, some white nationalists are taking the low road on the despicable and cowardly massacre in the, in the Charleston church by failing to adequately condemn Ruth's heinous acts and by subtly endorsing, to one degree or another, Ruth's supposed manifesto. And, and you know something? I'm not going to endorse Ruth's manifesto. I have a copy of it, and, and I intend to read it. I'm not going to endorse it no matter what it says because I have no proof that Ruth wrote it and, and that if he wrote it, that he was sincere about it. And secondly, I'm not going to um, condemn Ruth's highness acts because I as a man have no true idea at all, first, whether Ruth actually committed those acts, which can certainly be questioned, and, and just like we can question whether or not the Arabs blew up the Twin Towers and crashed planes into them, and just like we could question whether or not Timothy McVeigh alone was really responsible for the Oklahoma City bombing. There's a lot of things that we don't know, and if we don't know all of the facts behind something, why should we pass any judgment on it at all? 
I'm not going to um, endorse these alleged actions of groups at this moment. I may endorse them in the future, but the, um, I'm not going to condemn him because I don't know anything of his motives or even whether he had actually committed these acts. The Hoffman goes on to say... Well, if I could just mention one thing here, that um, uh, in, in so many of these um, what appears to be staged events, the, the pattern, not in all of them, but many of them, there seems to be a convenient uh, manifesto that they find. Um, and, and we have no idea whether uh, it's a Jewish ghost writer or if it's really the thinking of the alleged perpetrator. Who knows? You know? Well, well, absolutely. So, so we can't, what well, we shouldn't um, condemn or endorse until we have all the facts, and, and we may never have all the facts. So why should we condemn or endorse? And, and Michael Hoffman condemning or endorsing Ruth would be basically um, claiming to have all the facts to be able to make such a condemnation or such an endorsement. He, well, he since, goes, since when did we become a country where you're guilty until proven innocent? Absolutely. And, and that goes hand in hand with the same idea. Hoffman goes on to say that the political views of the homicidal terrorists, so he's already condemned this, that this fellow, are of no interest to this writer. Well, well, why is he even writing about it at all? And he says both Dylan Roof and Colin Ferguson should be hanged in public after a fair trial and an appeal process. Caucasians of all political persuasions who are worthy representatives of white Christian America ought to express condolences and severe sympathy, sincere sympathy to the black survivors of this terrible atrocity and condemn in no uncertain terms what this coward perpetrated. And, and the truth of this is that thousands of whites are murdered every year by Negroes. And we should have no condolences or sympathy at all for any Negro because Negroes are basically just wild animals roaming our streets seeking whom they may devour. Oh, that's what the Bible says about Satan, by the way. The, um, simply because some Negroes may appear to be civilized doesn't mean that they're really civilized. All of those black churches are hotbeds for black militantism against whites. And they've been hotbeds for black militantism against whites for the last hundred years. And, and what we see on the surface is not what goes on under the surface. We have, we owe nothing to Negroes. And we certainly do not owe sympathy or condolences to Negroes who happen to get shot because even if, even if Dylan Roof had done the shooting, we shouldn't have any sympathy or condolences for Negroes who happen to get shot by one disgruntled white man when there are Negroes out there prowling the streets of America looking for whites to rape, pillage, and murder every single day. Yeah, it is a rather uh, contradiction when he says he doesn't have any interest in his political views, but 
he should be hanged in public. <laughs> well, well, Hoffman is 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 a liberal. He he's ex, his his bleeding heart liberalism. I thought this went out in in the 1960s. Liberalism that that's this blatant. I thought this would. I, I never imagined to see this from a so-called white nationalist. I don't know how Hoffman quali- qualifies himself as a white nationalist. I know that he describes himself that way. I, I think he's a white fruitcake, to be he honest. Prides, he prides himself as quite the researcher, and yet he's characterizing this uh, as a terrible atrocity. And I haven't seen one picture uh, of any blood stains or bullet holes or anything that would indicate what the media is saying that happened. Well, well, it's just like Sandy Hook all over again. There's no bodies. Where are the bodies? Where are the blood stains? Where are the photos? Where are the... um... Where are, are, are the photos of the coroners taking these bodies away? Has anybody seen these things? Right. The, the, um, the people that were interviewed in the aftermath, I, I can't call them people. They were niggers. I'm sorry. The niggers that were interviewed in the aftermath of these things were certainly all crisis actors. I saw several of these interviews that they all had all the features uh, of crisis actors that they really weren't sorry, they really hadn't just lost their mother, that they, they were just faking it and, and, and trying to act intelligent in order to convince a bunch of dumb whites watching television that niggers can be intelligent. Yeah, it wasn't even good acting. So, so Michael Hoffman is, is absolutely out of line with, with this garbage. And, and he mentions Cass Sunstein and this is amazing to me that he he goes out on a limb to condemn this action to to um to to say that Dylan Roof should be hung in the public square, and then he mentions Cass Sunstein, and Cass Sunstein had actually um, advocated, and and I have this in some of his own articles published online, he had actually advocated the creation of false news stories in order to push his progressive political, political agenda. Well, um, yeah, he, um, he, uh, so this, this paper from Michael Hoffman, he, he is, um, I, I'm not even going to, um, it, it would make me sick to read the whole thing. He, he's saying that, that this is Cass Sunstein's spirit at work, and, and he's talking about relatives that are actors himself, and, and he's saying that these are conspiracy theories, and, and um, Hoffman's showing a divided mind, and, and a double-minded man is always unstable in all his ways. My, Michael Hoffman should be discredited for this article. It's garbage. Yeah, he says uh, it's a tragedy whenever we become what we oppose. Is I pray that our people will not sink to the level of the Zionist. Well, where's he been for the last 20 years? They already have. Hasn't he heard of Judeo-Christianity? Yeah, yeah right. I, I don't think he means it in, in that way. Yet, you know, if, if your children are being eaten by wolves in the streets, Hoffman is basically advo- advocating that we should not shoot the wolves. That's what he's advocating. <laughs> Well, and 
in that case, then he's advocating uh, pacifism. Well, well, yes, he is. He's also, this is another example, Mark, of that altruism, the projection of our values onto these niggers. These niggers do not have our values. He he gives the example of a a white man uh, going into uh, the headquarters of the the Crips, uh, Black Street Gang in Los Angeles, and uh, he says, that would still be wrong because he'd be breaking the law and acting as a vigilante. And I couldn't help but uh, recall a book called The Vigilantes of Christianity by Richard Kelly Hoskins, who gives many uh, stories throughout history that um, uh, stout Christian men were vigilant and courageous to hold back uh, the enemies that were approaching their towns and cities, ready to rape and pillage their their uh, their communities. Well, well, what Michael Hoffman is doing is he's professing an acceptance of government as it is, and he's condemning the execution of the judgment of God. He's condemning it. He's contending with God. I think uh, the last thing he said was probably the most egregious, um, where he said, may all the innocent victims of racist hatred in America, both black victims memorialized by the world and the white ones consigned to the memory hole, be equally mourned and remembered. So, so we equally mourn and remember the wolves and the sheep. I don't think that's the plan of God. I think God has a different plan. Well, I think Michael Hoffman can go to hell. Because he's the next Catholic, uh, I think perhaps uh, he could be a crypto-Catholic, if I could use that term. Oh, well, yeah, he's still a Catholic. He, he might say he's an ex-Catholic, but, but his theology is still entirely Catholic but from... From everything that I've seen of him, I haven't had any indication otherwise. I have read other of his articles. His position on race is ludicrous, and it is not conducive to the survival of our race. Not at all. He is a compromiser with the world who, with a good heart and great intentions, lead our race to the pits of hell. Yeah, he, he uses the term racist hatred as if there's something wrong with that. But to me, that's, that's a God-given trait. It's a survival mechanism. And we darn well better hate what God hates. And, and God says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. I guess he's got a problem with, with God not the racist haters in America. Well, well, absolutely. Hatred and racism are are the natural defenses, the the natural tools which allow us to defend what we love. And hatred and racism are godly, as long as we're defending what God loves, which is my face. That's why people coming into Christian identity get their eyes opened 
and they see a whole new Bible that deals with race and racism and understands it as the will of God. If you don't have that racial consciousness, uh, then you will have the delusion of being a victim and crying by genocide. Well, when it's really suicide. Thank you for joining me, Mark, and I will look, pa- I will look forward to part three of this, this presentation next week. Me too. Praise Yahweh. Have a good week, and, and um, we look forward to talking to you next, next Saturday here at Talk Show. Amen.